Man of Steel Answers Insight Commentary Episode 46 Monument I have so many questions Then of course there's the question on everyone's mind Then I'll ask the obvious question Start asking questions You're the answer son I'm Doc, and welcome to another round of Dawn of Justice observations that cover a mosaic of topics for fans of the Man of Steel and those excited by the Justice League universe. This episode, we look at Superman's statue, the memorial, and monument in Heroes Park. This show dives deep into the Justice League universe for answers and insight as we celebrate the films that make up that universe. Reasonable minds will differ, but this is a show for fans who love DC films and who love to chew their food. So I'm finally going to get to use some of my deleted segments in an episode. As much as I ramble in the final product, you wouldn't believe the amount of rabbit trails and tangents that I record, but which I spare you of in the editing process. Lots of little trivia, did you know, and references that don't really go anywhere and aren't really fit for consumption without heavily working the material in post, or are probably just better off being re-recorded from the beginning with a focus, a theme, a thrust, or a point. However, I did do some substantial segments on the Heroes Park Monument, which I'm repurposing for today's episode. The only reason I'm sharing this behind-the-scenes stuff is so that you understand any of that commentary that sounds like I haven't seen the film yet. Okay, that disclaimer done, let's just get to it. I'm not an architect, an artist, or art historian, so I can only analyze Heroes Park by analogy, looking at other similar structures which may have served as inspiration for this monumental piece of artwork within the production design of Batman V. Superman. And maybe in the process, you'll better appreciate the architecture, art, history, and design of our real-world memorials and monuments. I can only imagine the effort that went into making such a credible and moving piece of art in the film. And the way I see it, we'll look at Heroes Park as a whole, then we'll look at the memorial inscribed with the names of the lost, then there's the Superman statue, and finally the monument after his death. That's our roadmap or outline, and we'll move through each of those to better understand and appreciate their influences, their design, and their meaning. So to start with, the dictionary definition of a monument is a structure, statue, or building made to commemorate a person, event, or idea. And a memorial is the same, but meant as a reminder. Heroes Park is not the only commemorative structure or reminder of a memory in the film or in this universe. There are obvious and explicit examples, like the Washington Monument or the Wayne Crypt or the Kent Cemetery plots. Then there are structures that you might not think of that way initially, but LexCorp Tower is a monument to Lex, and its appearance on the skyline demarcates the timeline, and it commemorates everything after the Black Zero event. The Metropolis Library, modeled after the Parthenon, is a monument to books and allegedly egalitarian access to knowledge. Wayne Terminal is a monument to a time before Gotham's fall, and its condition is a reminder of its fall. And not to be left out of it, even alien make their mark. The Kryptonian Codex could be called Jor-El's monument to Krypton, and the Omega symbol burned into the baked bed of the bay is an ominous reminder. Memorials need not be meant for all. They can be small and for a select audience, even of one. The shrine to a fallen Robin, placed centrally by Bruce. The cairn, marking Clark's journey. Keefe's family photo, or a picture of a past father placed with his fallen son. 
This isn't an idea out of nowhere, but something that comes up again and again throughout the film. How do we shape the story of ourselves? In the moment, in our actions, in public perception, or in memory? We're going to use Heroes Park as our point of reference for discussion, but this isn't an idea in isolation, but something built into the fabric of the film, in part because it's built into the fabric of our culture and our society. We're prone to building monuments. We don't need to go all the way back to ancient temples and pyramids. Even in a century of Superman tradition, the Superman statue in Centennial Park is a long-standing fixture. So it was natural to do something symbolic in storytelling, expedient in pragmatism, honest to reality and true to tradition to have a hero's park with a Superman statue. How they arrived at it, however, was completely faithful to the same kind of considerations of how actual monuments are designed and built in the real world. Let me read an excerpt from the art book. Nowhere was the tragic rebirth of Metropolis more graphically illustrated than in the addition of Heroes Park, a memorial plaza for those who died in the Black Zero event, constructed within the gargantuan scar gouged out of the middle of the city by the Kryptonian world engine. So this gives rise to two points. First, the practical considerations of the effect this had on the city, and second, the symbolic. In terms of practical considerations, they could not leave the city in ruins. The city had to be rebuilt to heal, to remember and move on. And a park is the fastest path to a space that no longer looks like it's recovering, but is instead recovered. A park puts aside petty squabbles over grabbing prime real estate and puts it into the public's hands as a collective place to move past the BZE. The statue of Superman is also practical in the sense that it accommodates the need to come to a public consensus on Superman in a cynical view. In other words, the optimistic view is that this is how everyone actually feels towards Superman. A more cynical view is that this is the view that they have to feel towards Superman in order to move on with their lives. Someone with that kind of uncertain, unchecked power hovering over them every day would be nothing but a source of stress that they could do nothing about if the prevailing position was that Superman was just a ticking time bomb waiting to go off. So instead, the cynical view is that society reveres and honors an unstoppable power, perhaps by waving daisies or building statues, as a way of coping with and accepting an absolute power. Again, these are ideas not confined to a single unearned monument, but built throughout the film. The second point, the symbolic one, is less cynical. The art book says, A scar gouged out of the middle of the city. And that image or idea of a scar is an idea that we also see in the conception of the Vietnam Veterans Memorial. We'll get much more into the story of that wall later on, but for now, here's Dr. Beth Harris reading the words of the designer, Maya Lin. Well, in fact, she said, I had a simple impulse to cut into the earth. I imagined taking a knife and cutting into the earth, opening it up, an initial violence and pain that in time would heal. She writes that the experience of the monument would help people to come to terms with the death of their loved ones. So a part of the function of the memorial is to repair and heal like a wound would, but also to always remember like a scar does. The park does not just pave over the past, but it pays tribute to it. And again, from the art book, the whole language for that was very bold and almost bleak. It's not fun. We tried not to be fancy explains Totopolis. The park is taking the whole footprint of where the fight happened. We get the lines of the street that used to be there. You only see this in the aerial shots. So somehow there's a respect of the pattern of what the city used to be. 
So that idea of acknowledging what was there before the lines of the streets, that's something echoed in the intentions behind the design of the National September 11 Memorial. Here, Michael Arad explains the absence and acknowledgement of where the buildings once stood in the memorial's space. This is the built equivalent of a moment of silence, this idea of absence, of making visible and present what is no longer here. So we're actually standing within the tower footprint and, you know, defining that envelope is, is done here as quietly with the location of the trees. So we didn't want to sort of put a marker on the ground or a sort of a, a line that said here it was, but we at the same time wanted to find a way to acknowledge that. While the park isn't as the city was, it also isn't devoid of the city. The city is always observable inside the park and not obscured by dense trees or somehow hidden away. You can always see the skyline still standing and some ongoing repair. Again from the art book, one of the most important factors the filmmakers had to take into account in almost every view of Metropolis was the fact that the city had suffered a massive alien attack and was in the middle of rebuilding, as that event was obviously a drive force behind many of the plot points in the current movie. Here's Michael Arad again on how his design incorporates the city into the memorial. I look up and you see the sky. The balance for me was not to sort of step aside and and disassociate ourselves from the city, but to create something that was both in and of the city, but also an opportunity to sort of look at the city that surrounds us in a in a different light. Think of these sort of narrow urban canyons and emerging from them, like emerging out of the, the mouth of a narrow valley onto this vast open plain and, and encountering this unexpected force close to 400 oak trees and walking across the street. And I think the moment that you step onto the Memorial Plaza, you will feel that you're in a place that is both in New York, but unlike the rest of New York. Heroes Park serves as a public space for the public to be together as they are in the end of the film, leaving their separate siloed lives, each in their own little cubicles, and all join in a single show of solidarity and togetherness. In bustling, gleaming urban canyons, a sparse park is also an expression of openness, peace, simplicity, and reflection, both figuratively and literal. The park is grass and pavement, with the exception of the memorial in the middle, with three long ascending reflecting pools behind the Superman statue. On the idea of reflection in the Vietnam Memorial, here again is Dr. Beth Harris reading Maya Lin's words. Maya Lin said, it would be an interface between our world and the quieter, darker, more peaceful world beyond. I chose black granite in order to make the surface reflective and peaceful. I never looked at the memorial as a wall, an object, but as an edge to the earth, an opened side. The mirrored effect would double the size of the park, creating two worlds, one we are part of and one we cannot enter. At Heroes Park, you barely get a glimpse of the reflecting pools in the movie, so I'm not going to go into the parallels with the pool at the National Mall, but instead, let me play another clip about the 9-11 memorial, which also includes water elements, but also a larger uninterrupted context. On September 11, 2001, the World Trade Center was attacked. It became known as Ground Zero. After years of hard work, the entire site has been transformed into one of beauty and of remembrance. 
At its heart is the National 9-11 Memorial. Millions of visitors come to this site to pay their respects. What they see are two enormous reflecting pools that sit in the very footprints of where the Twin Towers stood. The pools are surrounded by bronze panels inscribed with the names of the nearly 3,000 people who died. When you come to the memorial, you come up to the edge of each one of these voids, and you see this enormous empty space in front of you. It's a space that can't be filled and will not be filled. It is there where you encounter the names of the dead. First, the impression you have is how many names there are. It's a sea of names over an ocean of tears. One tree is different. This tree was at the site on September 11th, discovered in a pile of rubble. It was nursed back to health and returned here. And in some sense, it really embodies the whole experience of 9-11 in a living being. It is damaged, but it also shows a tremendous amount of new growth. There are no words to describe how bad it was. The massive debris field, the smell of death completely took over your whole being. To work out of that to where we are now, it was a slow, hard process. As bad as 9-11 was, it demonstrated that when the times require, we do have the capacity to come together and take care of each other with limitless compassion. I remember that day. My generation, we remember growing up with it. It's like you were part of history. Makes me very proud to know that my dad went out the way for strangers. That's what I call a hero. Nobody ever wants to forget those people that passed away that day. Those people were brothers, wives, mothers, sisters, friends, and those people should be remembered in every way possible. So we can see how important a memorial can be to overcoming grief and tragedy. While the entire park itself is a memorial, so named Heroes Park, I'm going to call the engraved stones the memorial of Heroes Park, as those are specifically meant to pay tribute to the lost. Although we can't read it in the movie, in the art book, we see that on the ground in front of the names, it says, we remember the lost, we honor the heroes. The names engraved into a curved wall of 11 black obelisks takes a lot of inspiration from the Vietnam Veterans Memorial. There are many differences as well, but understanding that war memorial gives us greater insight into the intentions and effects of these structures. If you really want to dive deep, I recommend the Academy Award-winning documentary Maya Lin, A Strong Clear Vision, and the Studio 360 American Icons episode about the wall. Here's Kurt Anderson providing an overview. The beloved, sublime, and controversial memorial to America's most problematic war. To many people, the Vietnam Veterans Memorial is now almost sacred ground. They say it's a healing wall, and it might be for some. To me, it wasn't. It just opened up old wounds. The memorial changed the way we commemorate war. On Memorial Day last year, President Obama commemorate the 50th anniversary of the beginning of America's war in Vietnam. You are often blamed for a war you didn't start, and you should have been commended for serving your country with valor. After the president spoke, the wall was open to the public. Almost 40 years after that war ended, emotions still run raw here at the wall. Grief, regret, awe, sometimes anger. There are tens of thousands of veterans that were kept away from this memorial all day. This day that we come to remember, we were kept away by guards. I was chased out by guards. We had to wait to, what, 3.30 in the afternoon on Memorial Day. This is our wall. This is not the president's wall. This is our wall. This is our wall. Veterans didn't always feel that way. 
The Vietnam Veterans Memorial, built in 1982, began as probably the most controversial public sculpture in American history. Today, it still raises questions. What does it mean to memorialize a war that did not go the way anybody wanted? Can a work of art heal a nation? And is one point of healing to be ready to fight more wars? Before the wall was an icon, before it was even a design competition, the Vietnam Veterans Memorial was a cause championed by a single Vietnam vet named Jan Scruggs. Scruggs had gotten a master's degree in psychology. His focus was PTSD and the post-war recovery process. He realized there needed to be a public place where Vietnam veterans could be honored and could grieve for their buddies who didn't make it. And this new memorial had to be on the National Mall in Washington. And it was an oddball idea because in 1979, the war was barely over. Kristen Haas teaches history at the University of Michigan. It was still profoundly unpopular. Nobody had built a memorial, a war memorial, in a very long time. There were none on the National Mall. Scruggs was able to get the land with the help of a few key senators. The memorial would be paid for by private donations. On Veterans Day 1980, an open design competition was announced. One of the designs submitted came from a Vietnam vet named Tom Carhart. At that point, Carhart had no idea that he would become the main antagonist in this story, fighting to stop the wall as we know it today. Carhart's proposed statue of him cradling Lopez was not a finalist among the 1,421 submissions. Look, <laughs> it didn't win. It didn't deserve to win. That's fine. But like a lot of veterans back then, Carhart expected something conventional, maybe a grand white marble memorial that would commemorate the heroics of soldiers like Lopez. The design committee was bowled over by a very different kind of proposal. It was a scale model of two walls in the shape of triangles wedged into the earth of the National Mall. And just as unusual, the walls were black. Was the color meant to symbolize sadness and loss? Maybe... But University of Pittsburgh historian Kirk Savage says the black granite served another purpose. Her design absolutely demanded black granite because the whole point of it was that you were going to see a reflection in the wall. And you realize that you are as much a part of the monument as the granite and the names. All the designs were submitted anonymously. Jan Scruggs had no idea whose proposal this was. We uh, opened up the envelope and we saw that she was a student at a university in Connecticut known as Yale. That's all we knew about her, and that, that the name appeared to be very Asian to us, which we thought was sort of very nice because it would show how beautiful and fair the competition was. And when you first saw that design, what, what was your reaction? My reaction was, gee whiz, I think we are going to have a public relations problem on our hands. No kidding. The winner was a 20-year-old Chinese-American student named Maya Yin Lin. When she was presented at a press conference in May of 1981, Maya Lin still seemed slightly overwhelmed. Don't get your hopes up. We want to talk to you about your design. And they told me, and I didn't quite understand. <laughs> so they told me again, and I'm still not quite understanding. <laughs> a lot of people didn't understand. Lynn was about to encounter a flood of unhappiness and anger, but this very young designer would not deviate from her vision. I asked Maya Lynn if she would approach the memorial differently now as an artist in her 50s. The only change between now and then is if I 
would have been able to survive the criticism without having unbelievable doubt that I was right, which could have really changed or influenced. But when you're that age, you know you're right, and they're all wrong. And so that's, that's how I felt. You know, bless youth. It's, it it's protects one, us, right? It's one case where youth was not wasted on the <laughs> To fulfill the requirement that the names of all the dead had to be listed, Maya Lin had the original idea to list the names in the orders of their deaths. In the fight over the design, they really tried to convince me to make it alphabetical, and I absolutely, we had to have it chronological. What was the argument for it being alphabetical? It would be easier to use? It would be easier to use. And I said, you don't think people will take the time, a little time? Won't it make it more special? And then I I think we pulled up the number of Smiths there were. And I said, that is going to make people feel not special. Some of the haters of the unbuilt memorial attacked Lynn personally. You know, there was a lot of suspicion. Oh, it's anti-war. She's uh, look at her long hair. It's like it's like no, and she's Asian. And she's Asian. Oh, by the way, that was really the one. That was the thing that caught me off guard because I was extremely happily, really naive, and the veterans. They were so sweet. They protected me. And finally, after about seven months in Washington, I said, have there been any, like, letters about my race being an issue? And they would look at their feet, and they were so embarrassed. And it's like, yes, we've gotten the letters about how dare you let a gook design the memorial. And I was blessedly really naive about it. But in 1981, it was the veteran Tom Carhart who became the public voice of opposition. When the design was announced, I was horrified. So I decided to speak out. I spoke before the Fine Arts Commission. Carhartt coined the memorable and endlessly repeated phrase, black gash of shame. Both sides appealed to the Reagan White House, but the administration was also divided. Finally, they arrived at a compromise. Maya Lin's design would go forward if the site also included a traditional figurative statue of soldiers. Tom Carhartt was satisfied. And there was a round agreement for a statue. And then I said, if you're going to give us a statue, you've got to give us a flag, an American flag. And the initial placement of the flag was at the intersection of the walls. And whatever statue was going to be made was going to be placed within the walls. Which made Maya Lin livid. She said the proposed changes to her design made it look like a putting green. And the statues, merely eight feet tall, are taller than most of the wall for most of its length. These intrusions rip apart the meaning of names, destroying the meaning of the design. The chairman of the Federal Commission of Fine Arts had the final say, and he went with Maya Lin's vision. Tom Carhart felt betrayed once again. The Fine Arts Commissioners moved the flag and the statue off into the woods and took them away from the Vietnam Veterans Memorial, and I, I still find it an offensive slap in the face. I had sympathy with that reaction from the get-go. It was a very unusual design. The night before the dedication, I went on site, and this enormous veteran practically verbally pinned me at the apex and was just yelling at the top of his lungs. I mean, he was just attacking about, you know, how dare I do this? And, and all I could think of is it was working because it was pulling out an incredible amount of emotion. That emotional power ended up winning over the American public. The wall may not glorify this war, but it does glorify the people who fought it. And those 58,000 names on the wall were our people. 
So many things to take away from that clip, but let's start with certainty. It's interesting that Lynn considers doubt as something that came with age and wisdom, and certainty a product of youth and inexperience. Reflecting back 30 years, Lynn wonders if she would have been more skeptical of her own vision in the din of all the criticism around her. And we can see this in Jonathan Kent's skepticism about the world against Clark's certainty as a teen. Or we can see the doubt in the beleaguered Batman after two decades of service against the optimism of a Superman just starting out. Or we might say that given the ultimate reception of her vision after the initial criticism, to have youthful fearlessness and certainty and daring is necessary for challenging and risky art. Art historian Anne Wagner because it was an anonymous competition, Myelin had many problems. She was young, she was just 21, and she had had absolutely no experience of the war. Although she was an American citizen born in this country, she was an Asian American citizen, very much marked by that Asian identity. And to some people who were struck by her lack of qualification, her origins even further disqualified her. She didn't know the ropes of Washington. She began by coming in her blue jeans, her normal campus wear, and soon realized that if you're a kid sitting at a table with men in suits, this won't do. And she was adamant that this opportunity to realize this design not be stolen away from her, no matter how harsh the criticisms and how strong the opposition that she received. So Lynn is commended for her bravery, which she doubts she could show as easily today. Another point raised was the order of the names, and we note that the names on the 11 black stones of the Heroes Park Memorial are also not in alphabetical order. Professor Wagner comments. Lynn had to decide how to display the names of the dead. It's one of the most important decisions that goes into her design, and her decision breaks with common convention. She was faithful to the information that she had about the precise day on which the death occurred. And so the names that are carved into those black walls adhere religiously to a timetable of their deaths, a kind of clock of death, if you will. And it means that all we know about the identities of the men who died is the fact of their death. We don't know how old they were. We don't know their rank. In other words, there's nothing of the interior structure of the military, nothing about their achievements there. That's all immaterial. All that matters is when they met their end. For Heroes Park, those remembered are also simply stated as a name. There is no apparent division between those who served, those who sacrificed, and those who were lost. The names as an abstraction fully represent the person to the grieving in a way that, appending any additional detail, might not. Maya Lin talks about the name as an abstraction that in fact means more to family and loved ones than a picture. The picture represents someone at a particular time, at a particular place, at one moment in their lives, whereas a name might recall everything about that person. If the memorial is chronologically ordered, like the wall, it's possible that the 11 stones stand for the roughly 22 minutes of the Black Zero event, from the first strike of the gravity beam to Zod's death. Maybe. I don't know. 
More abstract memorials like these are less literal and tend to be rich in more symbolic design choices. And here's a Vietnam veteran volunteer explaining a few of the symbols of the wall. Was anybody able to figure out some of the spiritual or some of the figurative symbols of the wall? No? First of all, what color is the wall? We have the black wall to represent the mourning, as in to be sad, okay? The death. Look directly into the wall. Look beyond the names and tell me who you see. Reflections. That's right. So while you're here, your physical being is bonding with the names, the spiritual beings of the names on the wall. For those of you standing in the middle of the walkway, you're standing on the same Indian black granite that the wall is made of. The only difference is, is that's not polished, this is highly polished. If you were to look up the walkway, you would see that it tapers down as you go uphill, <laughs> the same way that the wall tapers down. There's a bond with your being there on the shadow of the wall as opposed to the wall itself. When you first entered the memorial, where were the first set of names in relationship to your body? Way down at your feet, at your ankles. Now take a look at where you're looking for some of the names. Two and three times over the height of your head, depending on how tall you are. I don't mean to be morbid, but it's as if you're in an open grave. Nobody's remains are here, but their spirit and their honor is placed here because that's the way it was chosen to be done. If I take my left cheek and I place it on the east wall, I extend the east wall out, I come to the northwest corner, specifically to the northwest corner of the Washington Monument. If I do the same with my right cheek on the west wall, I come to the northeast corner of the Lincoln Memorial. 125 degrees in a few minutes. Happen chance? No. It brings this memorial into its own context between these two great memorials, making this memorial no more, no less great, just different. You stop and think, that memorial represents one man. That monument represents one man. This memorial represents 58,260 men and women. Does it make it greater? It makes it different. So those are some of the spiritual, some of the figurative symbols of the memorial. Powerful symbols. Just take your time to extract them. I probably missed three or four. Somebody else can probably clue me in on what else I haven't found. But those are some of the more powerful ones. Yet despite the depth and the meaning which come from less overt works, abstraction also opens a work to misunderstanding and criticism. The wall was criticized for failing to expressly state a position of unambiguous heroism, patriotism, or positivity. And any kind of ambiguity, abstraction, or lack of clarity was instantly turned into an assumption of attack. Once again, art historian Dr. Beth Harris and her colleague Dr. Stephen Zucker. And one opponent of her design said, one needs no artistic education to see this memorial design for what it is, a black scar in a hole, hidden as if out of shame. Now, this is very different, I think, than what Myelin intended for the wall. She specifically took an apolitical approach and wanted the design to be about those veterans who had sacrificed their lives and not about the political controversy at all, not about whether the war was something shameful or something honorable. Well, the country had not only fought the war, but then fought itself over the meaning of the war. But Myelin, I think, was very wise in sidestepping that and putting to the fore simply the names, the numerical power of all of those fallen. Despite intending an apolitical approach, the critics assumed condemnation of veterans or an anti-war attitude. I don't have an overt political statement that I want to get across. If anything, my approach to the Vietnam Memorial was to make a piece that would be neutral and yet would ask us to face these individual lives lost. 
I won't play the clip now, but you probably wouldn't be surprised to know that while some veterans condemn the memorial as anti-war, some anti-war critics find the wall as entirely too apologetic and pro-war in its execution. When something requires reflection, analysis, and seeking is purely approached with antagonism, every element is a point of controversy and unnecessarily politicized. But even that black granite created controversy. She also talked about how she couldn't spec granite that came from Canada or from Sweden, two countries that had really good quality black granite, because there was too much political baggage, because draft dodgers had gone to both of those countries. Critics begin to bring baggage into the art that is almost entirely besides the point. Fortunately, there were those who supported a less starkly obvious approach. And it's a very different experience than most previous war memorials. When we think about the history of war memorials, we often think about memorials to military heroes, like the monument to Lord Nelson in Trafalgar Square. Or we might think about the Shaw Memorial by Augusta St. Gaudens in the National Gallery, where you have a hero leading an anonymous army with an allegorical figure representing peace and death. This combination of allegory and heroism that's usually in memorials and is completely absent here. How can one create a meaningful monument in the late 20th century? What does it mean to strip away all of the representational form? What does it mean to create something so self-consciously abstract and yet also so powerful and so meaningful? Evidently the committee that judged this decided that this abstraction would be best. And it's interesting to think about how the committee didn't know who Myelin was. There were 1,400 entries, completely anonymous. Nevertheless, there was backlash. The abstraction of this design really stuck in people's throats. It seemed too radical and too exclusive, perhaps. It didn't image suffering or so the critics uh, claimed. There was no plinth on which heroes stood. The result of this is that another commission for what we might call a counter-monument or an anti-monument was launched, and that commission was given to a figurative sculptor called Frederick Hart, who, interestingly, had also submitted to the competition that Maya Lin won. The committee to stop the Maya Lin design went to Hart to ask him to realize his design, which he did, and it was erected. It is a highly traditional bronze of three standing soldiers, and moreover, it represents these men as stunningly handsome, beautifully muscled. Its terms are so expectable. They're so Hollywood. They're so, what we might say, provided. Uh, they do our thinking for us, which is a way of saying that they are deeply kitsch. I think you can hear Professor Wagner's lack of admiration for the more conventional and spoon-fed statue. Dr. Harris and Dr. Zucker are more diplomatic. And there was backlash also about the abstraction. Ultimately, that was resolved by a much more naturalistic sculpture adjacent to the main memorial. One that shows soldiers in a very naturalistic way, three-dimensionally, which is also powerful, but in a way that feels much more public and far less intimate. We'll talk about the statue a little later, but I want to return to the function of the wall for healing. How did a design that initially shocked and upset so many people so quickly become a kind of sacred space? 
almost universally loved. Historian Kirk Savage says that before it was built, critics of the wall were only reacting to a design proposal. You really have to go to the National Mall to feel its power, to be convinced. You almost lose your connection with the mall. You know, the kind of traffic noise is diminished, the soundscape changes, the space feels more quiet, more intimate. The important thing to know about the Vietnam Veterans Memorial is that it made memorials matter again. Historian Kristen Ha says the Vietnam Veterans Memorial changed the way we grieve in public. The practice that is ubiquitous now of at the site of some kind of public tragedy, people bringing their teddy bears and their toys and letters and flowers. It's everywhere. It happens all the time now, but it didn't happen in public places in the United States before Mylan's memorial. Which is amazing. This time when I visited, I hardly even noticed the teddy bears and flowers and letters that visitors left at the wall because that's what I expected to find. On November 13, 1982, veterans poured in from all over the country to experience the memorial for themselves after a year of contentious public debate. Vietnam veterans have come to Washington, D.C. to dedicate the memorial to all who served. I went to the dedication in November of 82. And I went with a pretty negative attitude about it. But back then, I had a pretty negative attitude about everything. Like a lot of veterans, John Devitt returned from Vietnam feeling insulted, ignored, angry. And he'd heard the bad press about this new memorial in Washington, that it was some kind of avant-garde, anti-war art. But he decided to go to D.C. and check it out. And then when I got there, it was like... Kind of softened my anger, you know, because I was angry for 12 years. It seemed like all the guys that were killed, and it was like nobody cared. But then I saw that people did. With this dedication, America is saying, Welcome home. Anti war, pro war, the wall has been like a mirror to America's complicated and conflicting sentiments. The real impact of Mylan's design is how it's changed the way we mourn as a nation. Early on, like the veterans were asking me before it was built, well, what do you think people are going to do when they first come here? And I wanted to say they're going to cry. But I knew that that would make me even stranger than I, I'm sure they already thought I was. There are now echoes of Mylan's work everywhere. The memorial at the World Trade Center features the names of the dead etched in black stone. For me, the names were key to it. They were about the individuality of each person. And there's nothing, I think, more personal than the name that we carry. Michael Arad designed the 9-11 memorial. You're given your name at birth and you you grow into that name. And if you change your name at some point in your life, that is uh, a momentous occasion. And I wanted to do that. I wanted to sort of to mark both this collective loss, but also the individual loss uh, that that one by one by one created this this tally. Anyone can relate to a name. If you've given birth to a child, if you've held a baby in your arms, if you've baptized someone and say, I name you. This wall will break your heart. And I think that's what people will remember 100 years from now. A lifetime from now, I'm betting the Vietnam Veterans Memorial will endure because it's a work of art that looks unflinchingly and respectfully at enormous sacrifice and death. It captures and conveys the inevitably mixed feelings of heroism and loss, which is what a great memorial is supposed to do. 
that, we see a clear expression of those same truthful behaviors at Heroes Park. It isn't a sterile space devoid of soul, but an interactive area where people have left hallmarks of their loss. Even Wallace Keefe, who hates Superman with a passion, still recognizes and receives the wall as something else. A place of mourning where he can leave a picture, marking the loss of a happy family once upon a time. We'll come back to Keefe, but I want to note the effect of expectation on criticism. Much of the outrage over the memorial came from how it didn't fit the preconceived notions of what a meaningful memorial ought to be in the minds of critics looking at tradition and the landscape of existing memorials. What was the controversy? The controversy was that people didn't like the design that was selected after it was selected, and I think people felt that it was not your traditional color, it was not your traditional shape, it was not at all vertical. It listed all the names. It did so chronologically. It was not usual. They expected statues of heroes because that's what most wars got. That's what tradition tended to dictate, and that's what they saw looking around. And even with something as abstract as the Washington Monument prominently piercing the sky for all to see as proof of concept, they still wanted what they thought everyone else had, what they thought what everyone else got. And defiance of that expectation enraged them, especially being the most invested, the veterans themselves, the ones who had been there. Nonetheless, Myelin recognized that the wall was for them, but not only them. When you talk about it, you conceive of this and your work as this one-on-one thing. Who, who was the one? I mean, was it the veteran, the, the hypothetical veteran, the veterans you'd talk to, or, or who? It's anyone. I mean, I think a lot of the work that I do could talk to a child. It has to talk to someone who's 10, 15, as well as it has to relate to someone who's directly connected, who is a veteran. No, especially memorials, they can't be just for the group that was hurt. Because they're not going to be around forever. And also that, I don't think, because a memorial is there to remember a loss, but that these are public memorials. They have to be for everyone, like the same with, say, the World Trade Center. You have to step beyond the families and think, this is for this country, this is for the world. You have to share it. You have to be a part of a much larger dialogue in order to get overcome something that we all felt grief. Obviously, those that are immediately connected feel an incredible pain, and it's for them, but it's much more than that. It's, it's for everyone. With time and distance from those initial expectations, the Vietnam Veterans Memorial has garnered increased acceptance, understanding, and even adoration. As we've heard, the Vietnam Veterans Memorial actually changed expectations and the way memorials are made and used today. And much of that comes from the second part of overcoming criticism, showing people that you care. After people put aside their expectations, they're more open to an understanding of how the artist sincerely cares. And that allowance can often soften hearts. You heard the story of the angry veteran who came to the dedication with his anger, and when he saw just how many people really cared, it let him set aside his anger and his criticism. He would go on later to start the first of many traveling war memorials to help others overcome that same sense of hurt and anger that he felt. One way of appreciating and understanding just how much people care is having it explained to us. Over the course of this episode, so far, 
far, you've heard from the designer, from art historians, and from veterans. Those individuals apply their experience and expertise, knowledge and training, insights and analysis to extract and pass on the meaning and value and care and consideration that went into its design so that others can understand and appreciate its significance, thoughtfulness, and genuine concern for its subject. It's an unconvincing argument that art should only be appreciated entirely on its surface, viscerally, and entirely on feeling alone, and that any analysis, explanation, or education automatically denigrates the art. How much less compelling is the Vietnam Veterans Memorial without its history, its symbolism, its design explained or understood? And this is what I mean by chew your food, to go beyond just surface impressions and instinct. And that approach allows you to appreciate more than just any one film, but to find wonder, worth, and awe in everything. Now, we've all felt this. You've looked up at the sky on a dark night, you've seen the Milky Way, or you listen to a beautiful piece of music, you feel a sense of majesty, a sense of awe. Paul Piff, Docker Keltner, and many other researchers have found that awe not only does wonderful things for you, but that it helps you do wonderful things for others. Mm. Volunteers induced to feel awe act more altruistically, more ethically. They stop thinking of themselves and their problems as bigger or more important than others. So if you're on vacation right now, whether that's a hike around the neighborhood or a hike around the Grand Canyon, remember that one of the most important things you can do is to let yourself get caught up in the moment. Feel grateful. Feel awe. It's one of the ways vacations can make us better people. A sense of awe can be inspired by the enormous statue of Superman at the center of the Heroes Park Monument. It stands over 30 feet tall, kneeling and bent over, and is of a size and scale for a figurative statue that we don't often see in today's modern cities anymore. If he were to stand upright, chest thrust out, hands on hips, this titan would be twice as tall as Abraham Lincoln in the Lincoln Memorial, himself no less awe-inspiring, and someone else who could project power power and authority in sculpture, even without standing. Speaking of the Lincoln Memorial, the designer, Daniel Chester French, positioned Lincoln's hands as symbols of his character, one hand clenched in a fist, representing strength and determination, and the other relaxed to represent compassion and warmth. Here, Superman's posture is perfect characterization and comes directly from Zack Snyder. From the art book, quote, that statue shows humility, just the way he reaches out to people, the way he poses himself himself, says Tatopoulos. Zach actually posed this for us. He went on the floor one day and said, hey, this is how it should be. And until he actually posed for it, I just was not completely clear. But I got it in the end. Unquote. This massive angelic figure is humbled and bowed down, crouching, bent over, not lording his power and confidence over mortal man, not charging upwards with his fist, piercing the sky, punching the heavens in defiance. Instead, it is respectful and inviting, solemn and mournful, perhaps evocative of guiding the dead to a final resting place in the heavens. There are no powers on display, no inhuman ability, no boastful posture, no act of aggression. It's an invitation and offer, submission and service, despite his power and being larger than life, not an imposition of his power. In the art book, you can see early concept art focused around more abstract presentations of flight, but Snyder selected a decidedly grounded design, which could almost resemble Atlas preparing to receive the weight of the world on his shoulders. The design has integrity. 
It looks absolutely like a monument that could and would be built. Note that while the statue is very naturalistic and detailed, it is still intentionally abstracted from the actual Superman. The texture of the suit is different. The facial features are more ambiguous. And this abstraction over stark realism feeds into the idea that what is being honored is more of an abstract idea or entity than the real person or individual. The sculpture didn't need and didn't want to render every atom more poor of the actual Superman because they don't know it and don't need to in order to honor and memorialize Superman's courage and heroism in the BZE. It's an idea that contradicts our modern sensibilities of heroism, but it is in keeping with our more traditional approach to honoring heroes. The sentiment is captured in a speech by Colossus and here by the irreverent historian Nicholas Lloyd. And all this to celebrate a marvellous victory and to honour its architect, Vice Admiral Horatio Lord Nelson. For the wonder, would Nelson be given a column today? You see, people in his day recognised him as a tremendous hero. He did the single greatest thing that anyone could do for mankind. That's right, he stuffed the French. He stuffed them quite spectacularly. But today, if you want to get a statue of someone made, they have to be considered to be perfect in every conceivable way. They have to be thought of as a, a role model, whatever the hell that is. No, why can't we just celebrate the fact that someone's done something really great? This guy stuffed the French, well done, give the guy a column. Name the whole square after the battle that he won. But he had a scandalous affair. Yes, it was scandalous, but that was private, that was a personal affair. What he did for the country, what he did for the world, was stuff the French. And so they built in this magnificent monument, and um, I think this is a good thing. I'm sure there are people that we are putting statues up today who will be considered appalling in the future because of, I don't know, something they say or do at some point. So you don't have to think of an award or a statue, a monument or whatever as an endorsement of an entire person. Every single thing that that person ever said or did or stood for their entire lives or even beyond their lives in some cases. No, we reward people for an act and I think that is the way it should be. That's the deal. So uh, if you rescue a baby from a burning building, well, why shouldn't you get an award? I don't want someone who's you know, done six months for shoplifting or whatever to walk past a burning building and think to himself, well, I would go in there and they wouldn't reward me for it because after all, it would be an endorsement of me as an entire person and I act as a role model and I'm a shoplifter and what sort of signal does that send out? No, I don't want people to be thinking that at all. I want them to just rescue babies from burning buildings and then I want society to say, well done. We don't care that you went to prison for shoplifting. You rescued a burning building. Well done. And if you stuff the French, it doesn't matter what affairs you had with ambassadors' wives. You get a collar. This seems to be the principle when we commemorate, for example, the United States Marine Corps War Memorial better known as the Iwo Jima Memorial, or the first responders in 9-11. It is an acknowledgement of them in the moment towards a larger ideal, not the wholesale endorsement of their entire being as a person for all time and in every regard. They all performed heroic acts worthy of honor. The honor does not mean that they performed heroic acts exclusively every moment of their entire lives. So the political, practical, and popular will to create a monument to an alien cipher isn't an unrealistic contradiction to the subsequent concerns, questions, and criticisms Superman faces. It's what happens in reality. We raise up the outline of a hero, turn them into an idol to obsess over, and then we tear them down and raise them to the ground when reality sets in and scandal is ultimately revealed. Humanity has never needed exhaustive, intimate knowledge of an individual before hailing them heroes. We build regardless of worth, deserving, knowledge, or reality 
reality. Why else would we build giant tombs or idols? It isn't as if Pharaoh could empirically prove his deity or that the false gods came down to establish their bona fides. No, we can build without any of that, and that creates a gap in which we can be worshipping false gods. And that brings us to Wallace Keefe and his protest. The entire story of Wallace Keefe is another show, but for now, let's put ourselves in the shoes of somebody seriously aggrieved by the Superman statue. Now, Keefe finds even clippings of Superman's heroism offensive, so he doesn't need these specific reasons to protest the Superman statue. But we can look at how the design might offend someone like him, how a fault finder will never fail to find fault. First, Keefe wouldn't consider Superman a hero, so being the centerpiece of Heroes Park is entirely wrong. To Keefe, Superman didn't save them from Zod, but he was the one to bring war into their lives. Second, even if Superman was a hero, he doesn't deserve to be aggrandized or singled out. The park is called Heroes Park, heroes plural, but the only evident hero presented is Superman, in the statue to the Taurus and in the banners that surround the park. Third, Superman trivializes the memorial. Memorial. We heard how offended Maya Lin was at the idea of a statue in the middle of her design, turning the wall into a mere backdrop to the central statue and flag. Keefe may have similar sensibilities, with the added grievance that Superman is still alive, exalting his survival over the sacrifice of the lost. The Superman statue intrudes into the space of the memorial and turns something sacred, casual, and conventional. I first visited the wall 28 years ago, shortly after the statue of soldiers had been added to the grounds. I wrote, around the statue, people talk louder and breathe easier, snap vacation photos unselfconsciously, eat Eskimo pies and Fritos. But it's the wall that veterans approach as if it were a force field. It's at the wall that families of the dead cry and leave flowers and mementos and messages the way Jews leave notes for God in the cracks of Jerusalem's western wall. In our quick encounter with the statue, there are those obviously there to pay their respects. But not even 50 feet away, tourists snap their cameras, a couple has their lunch, and people converse as if they were anywhere else. Their behavior would be frowned upon in, say, a cemetery, but it's ordinary in any old park, and maybe Keefe thinks Superman's statue turns the space into any old park. Fourth, less Superman-specific, Keefe may be mad at how the memorial excludes him. Healing comes by virtue of what we choose to remember and what we allow ourselves to forget. Critics of The Wall allege that its focus on the American dead excludes others impacted by the war and allowed America to heal at the expense of not counting those costs. Keefe might consider himself the living dead, the wounded with no one to mourn or remember him. His name does not go on the wall. His pain is is not acknowledged. His anger is not represented or heard. He's unseen, unheard, silenced, and buried without the honor and respect of being dead. This kind of mentality feeds into the red notes about Keefe as a ghost haunting the blind Bruce. Fifth, we addressed before the idea that the statue is insincere and instead simply political expedience. The alternative to endorsing Superman is frankly a repulsive state of affairs. Even if the world should view Superman with fear and skepticism, how is that any way to live? Without kryptonite, normal mortal men can't do anything about it, but fester in their fear and wallow in their worry. And you can get an idea 
idea of how hatred may have built up in Superman's critics because of their powerlessness while the world moved on without them, much less their reaction to making monuments to the monster who haunts their nightmares. In Lex's worldview, the powerless wave daisies at monsters to placate them. To Bruce, it's only a matter of time before the promise of an exalted hero comes crashing down. And to Keefe, the monument is to purely pacify a sleeping and apathetic public. He wants the people to wake up, to open their eyes, and to see his reality. Sixth and finally, Keefe may be in a sense protesting the permanence of the memorial. Monuments are an effort to set history in stone, to say for the ages that this is what we believe. This is to be remembered, now and for all time. And while the facts of the past may never change, short of Barry Allen going back to change them, our historical understanding and interaction with those facts do all the time. We learn new things and we forget and lose others, and our interpretations change. A statue erected to honor a figure may be unveiled to applause and celebration, only to be torn down by the very same people to just as much cheering as before, if not more. We imagine the toppling of Saddam Hussein's statue or the fall of Lenin's statues with the fall of the Soviet Union. Of course, there is another side to toppling monuments. This video appears to show the inside of a museum in the Iraqi city of Mosul. The extremists strip the ancient statues of their protective coverings, then shatter the priceless relic. Here, a militant at an archaeological site is seen destroying an ancient winged bull. The artifact is believed to date back to 700. BC. This means the irreparable loss of some of the world's oldest and greatest antiquities, antiquities that are representative of the cradle of civilization. It roots us in our origins. It understands that we are part of a much larger picture, a picture that is as diverse as the world itself. Since seizing control of Mosul last June, ISIS has been meticulously purging the city of its diverse history. Last summer, the militants blew up this ancient tomb, believed to be the burial place of the prophet known as Jonah in the Bible and you in the Quran. These acts of vandalism are a tragedy for all civilized people, and the civilized world must take a stand. Extremists are also believed to have destroyed thousands of rare manuscripts from Mosul's libraries. As a footnote, the Dutch have another approach to controversial monuments. This is Jan Pieter Sokoen. He was the head of this Dutch East India Company. At one point, someone made a mistake, and then the statue fell. And then there was a fuss about it, because it was lying there on the floor, they were saying, should we actually put it back? Because at one point he uh, killed a large part of the population of the Banda Islands. Controversial. And then thought about it, and they had like a poll, opinion poll, and then 63% of the people said, no, it's okay, you can put it back. But you should write down on the statue, as you can see here, there's a little sign, and there it says like, this is Jan Pieters van Koen, this is what he did, he's brilliant. P.S. He did something at the Banda Islands, Okay. So that's the Dutch way of solving a problem with the controversial monuments. Today, the statues of Rhodes and Columbus have been the subject of protest, often covering their hands or heads with red paint and all that entails in our culture. Red signifies blood, error, terror, warning, danger, anger, violence, rage, passion, sin, and scarlet letters. Political expression through graffiti is at times treated as criminal activity, and other times tolerated as street art. Check out the 2011 Channel 4 documentary Graffiti Wars for the fascinating feud between Banksy and King Rabo for more on that. We might go into that one 
one day with respect to Lex Luthor's Banksy t-shirt, but not now. Now, unlike most protesters, Keefe isn't trying to avoid arrest or not get caught. He isn't part of a mob, a regime change. He isn't anonymous, hiding his identity, or doing something under the cover of night. It's very important to him to sacrifice his own liberty, his own freedom, to say, I'm willing to give this up. I'm willing to pay this cost to make this very important statement for everyone to hear. Messages without cost are easier to disregard. Someone vandalizing Superman's statue from the shadows is a step above an internet post, but not much more than that, because that person can never be held accountable. They didn't stand up for their statement, and it could just be seen as a drive-by act of vandalism, rather than a profound statement. And what Keefe is saying is, I am the statement. My life is the statement. My body, the testimony. This is what happened to me. Know my story, know my life, and know what happened to me. And get angry. Get desperate. Get moving as much as I did. I lost my legs. I lost my life. I lost my family. I'm willing to give up my freedom so that you'll get this story. And that message does seem to spark something in others, which we see later in the film. And the point is that protest, graffiti, and even the destruction of monuments all reflect a fluidity of public sentiment, which Keefe could resent as permanently affixed with the Superman statue. Briefly, I just want to take a detour into how Superman may or may not feel about the statue. I remember early rumors or reports when the statue was first seen of an unveiling ceremony for the statue featuring the mayor. Supposedly, it was made up of mostly Superman supporters and children saved by Superman. I don't know if those reports were true, but they would reflect something that would likely happen within the world of the story. And you have to wonder, how does Superman react to something like that? And in my opinion, while he appreciates the acceptance, I also imagine that there is some unease that comes with that. After you create a monument to somebody, it creates an expectation. It starts to write history and creates a narrative that this is who they are. And we have that expression put on a pedestal. And they literally done that with his statue. And it creates the expectation that he's not just this one thing that he did, but the ideal thing he represents. And that's interesting with respect to Superman because of how private he is and how much of a cipher he is to the public. So in a sense, he can only be appreciated abstractly. And in a sense, the statue is almost saying to Superman, we don't know you, we don't need to know you, and we don't want to know you. And if Clark thinks that that abstraction is important, it puts him in the position of obliging that attitude at the expense of himself. He can't just go on talk shows. He can't do interviews. He can't reveal his flaws, his politics, his opinions, because he's in service to the symbol. I can imagine Clark having had these kinds of thoughts and discussions with his mom and with Lois, which is why they advise on it. Martha is dismissive of being their monument because she knows that that's just the symbol. But Lois says this means something referring to the symbol. The distinction between the position and the person probably has been on Clark's mind for some time, but not enough to really challenge him until after the African incident. In the end, however, his death humanizes him. It proves him mortal to the machinations of man. So they're no longer worshipping a god, but honoring a fallen hero. And with that, let's quickly wrap on the post-death monument. We only get the quickest glimpse of this, but the engraved shield symbol on the ground was always a part of the original monument. You can still see parts of the sculpture around it. And if you go back to the scenes with the statue, you can see that the crest is already there. So with this new quote-unquote monument, let's just briefly address Keefe's concerns. Is Superman a hero? Yes. Most certainly to all who are gathered. Is he aggrandized? Does he trivialize the memorial? No, he's no longer above the other names, and now he's joined them as another engraving. 
Is anyone excluded? No, because this is a living and participatory monument. His monument is not the statue or the shield, but it's the lives of everyone saved, the lives that they'll live and the contributions that they'll make. And everyone can be a part of that. Is it insincere? Absolutely not. The outpouring is emotional and real. These are not people showing up to make a political statement or reluctant participants in the fear of an absolute power. These are people showing genuine appreciation for the loss of someone no longer with them. The sincerity is evident in the spontaneity of the new graffiti message. A formal, planned park memorial would not copy the words off Christopher Wren's resting place, but an emotional artist would, and Wren's epitaph referred to literal architecture. But here, the thing commemorated and remembered are the lives saved. Compared to Keefe's red accusation, this graffiti comes in white, the color of peace, purity, calm, goodness, and light in our culture. Unlike Keefe's attention-getting actions, rejected by society as criminal, here the writer is anonymous and the message is accepted by everyone. Finally, is it permanent? Not exactly. This is a transient moment, a temporary gathering. Live flowers will wither. Candles will burn out. The memorial is revealed with Bruce imploring mankind to do better. And each time they do and go on, that's because Superman gave them another chance to do so. I think I'm going to leave it at that. Hopefully you learned a little art history, seen how works can overcome criticism, might consider the monuments in your life, and remember to take some time out to feel awe. Okay, I've rambled on long enough. Thanks so much for listening. I just love discussing this stuff. And if you've been sticking with me, hopefully you do too. If you like what you heard, please review the show on iTunes and subscribe. I'm Doc, your DC Films Justice League Universe apologist, signing off. See you next time. Answer, son.